Good morning. You're all very welcome. My name is Lisa, and I'm part of the community here at Kirkpatrick. And I want to welcome those present with us in the building and also those joining us online at home to our service of worship today. It's such a joy to be able to see a sea of faces again before me, now that restrictions have eased somewhat. And as Billy said, we only need to wear our face masks when moving about in the building and when singing. So if the wearing of masks is something that has maybe deterred you from joining us again in person, know that you do not have to wear a mask for the duration of our service, and we would love to have you back with us once more. Um, There will be Sunday Club provision at our later service at half 11, and we love to hear um, the young children, the toddlers, and the babies in our congregation. Um, If you have a toddler or a baby, and you are maybe aware of noise or um, them becoming restless and you yourself feel uncomfortable, there is a room available to use just out this door. You can use the Whitley Hall, and you'll still be able to enjoy the service out there. We come today to remember God's greatness, his kindness, and his power. We come to worship him as the body of Christ by the power of the Spirit. Our help is in the name of the Lord our God, the maker of heaven and earth, who comes to our aid in times of need, who gives us the courage to do what we know is right who invites us to turn away from the influences of the world around us and confess him alone as Saviour and Lord. This is our God. Let's worship together and let's do just that as we sing, Wait Upon the Lord. I'd like to invite you to join with me this morning in a responsive prayer of confession. So I will read the words on the screen and I would just ask that you read the words in bold along with me. Let's pray. If at times we deny you, God forgive. When the risks of discipleship are high and we are nowhere to be found, God forgive. When we wash our hands of responsibility, God forgive. When we cast our lot with powerful oppressors and seek to buy freedom with silver, God forgive. When fear keeps us from witnessing to your truth or prejudice keeps us from believing it, God forgive. In the bright light of morning, O God, our sin is exposed and your grace is revealed. Tender God, Raise us in your love so that with joy we may witness to your awesome deeds in the name of Jesus, the risen one. Amen. If you've been if you've been about Kirkpatrick for a The joy of seeing a child open the boxes for the first time is just, it's incredible. We are so excited. Many of the children receive the shoe boxes for the first time in their life. We pray that these boxes will be used to bring a lot of happiness and joy, but more importantly, the gospel to each heart, all these little children around the world. No greater need and no greater time than right now for us to go out and serve boldly. 
This is what these shoe boxes are all about, to go out and to bring a hope of Jesus Christ around the world. I'm just so amazed at what God does each and every year. This is an opportunity to impact the lives of millions of children, just like you've seen. But we need more boxes for next year. Every box is an opportunity for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So thank you, and God bless each and every one. My name's Leslie. I'm one of the church family here. Um, and for the last few years, we have been involved with Operation Christmas Child, which is the shoebox appeal. Um, are we... Um, uh, okay, great. So um, what we would just like to remind you is that we will be running this again today. So at the front, I have been putting some boxes together, and inside is the leaflet with all the information or... Uh, you can just grab a box if you'd rather have it flat or if you have your own. But um, just to give you some background, um, Operation Christmas Child has been running since 1990 whenever a couple in England just wanted to, saw a need within the, um, I think it was in the orphanages in, uh, in the Eastern Europe and wanted to provide them with a, a, a gift. And really from then that has gone on and on and grown and grown. Um, and I don't know if, um, if you have done it yourselves in your household um, or in your family, but to date, I'm just getting my details right, there's been 186 million boxes have been donated to 100 different countries, which is fantastic. Um, I love this because it's a really clearly open Christian charity. Um, they want to share uh, the good news of Jesus through the love of giving and giving a gift, but also as well, through God's word, and uh, you maybe saw it in the video, but every child will be offered the chance to do a discipleship course, which is called The Greatest Journey. Um, and from that, they hope to share the good news with the, the children, with their families, with their communities. So these boxes will all go out to churches in that area to try and help form those links and build those relationships as well. Um, so uh, this is just an opportunity for you to get involved if you want to. We've got to the 14th of November. If you want to just bring your box and leave it back here, and then I'll take it to the distribution centre. If you've got any questions about that, um, please uh, let me know. That's no problem at all. I'm happy to help. Um, so uh, the other alternative is if you don't think you're able to, or to manage with a box, you can do it online. Uh, where you can basically pick the items and someone in the, the main processing centre will put it together. So if that is a better option for you, then that would be fantastic. Um, if you've done these boxes in previous years, what we used to do is put the, the uh, transport costs in the envelope in the box. This year's a bit different. They're asking you to pay it online if you can, um, and if you can't, to use the envelope to just actually post those costs rather than have them within the box. Um, and if you're thinking about the things to put in, well, if you've got children in your family, you're, you've got this, a big advantage. If not, you know, there's lots of children in Kirkpatrick. You can ask what kind of things might be good to find in the box, um, but no liquids, uh, including toothpaste, and no sweets. And if you can, um, add a personal note, add a photograph. It's lovely for those children to see the faces of the people who have sent the box and who's hopefully praying for them as well. So come and grab me if you have any questions or queries about it. Thank you.
Thanks so much, Leslie, and thank you for coordinating that for all of us. We're going to take some time now to read from God's Word, and we'll be reading a couple of chapters of Acts today. So we'll be starting at Acts chapter 6, verse 1, and we will be reading right through to Acts 8, verse 3. So Acts chapter 6, verse 1, the words will appear on the screen um, if you can follow along with us. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenist Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members in the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? Brothers, fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him after eight days. 
And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine in the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to our fathers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 in in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died there. And our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. This time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. I supposed his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became a father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of, of Mount Sinai and in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, He was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled, did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt, and have heard them groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in a bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea, 
and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angels who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it's written in the book of prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness of Israel? You took up the tent of Malak and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is this place of my rest? Did not my hand make these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. 
This is the word of God. Before Monty comes to open up God's word to us, we're going to sing once again, and we'll sing, Jesus is the name we honor. Good morning. Uh, I didn't expect to be standing up here this morning, and maybe if you'd been following earlier uh, communications, you wouldn't have been expecting to see me this morning either, but Paul has unfortunately taken ill during the week. I'm not sure whether it was the sight of a 78-verse passage that made him ill, Um, but uh, please get well soon, Paul. And In fact, if you get well between the first and second services, that would be really good as well. Uh, I'm just going to concentrate a little bit uh, in that long passage on Stephen's speech, uh, which was done so well for us by, by Sam this morning. There's an old Irish blessing which says with characteristic humor, may you have the hindsight to know where you've been, the foresight to know where you're going, and the insight to know when you've gone too far. Many folks have said, we can't know who we are unless we know where we've come from. I think sometimes the church suffers from amnesia. I remember listening to the prayer of a well-meaning believer uh, from a Pentecostal tradition who thanked the Lord that the Holy Spirit returned to the church in the 1970s. I remember hearing a well-meaning young person in America introduce a song by Larry Norman, I'm showing my age, the 1970s Christian rock and roll star. And they began by saying, now, we're going to do a song by Larry Norman. And Larry Norman was the first person to write Christian music. I think uh, Johann Sebastian Bach might have something to say about that. Never mind the psalmist. Remember my church history professor beginning his first ever class by saying, I'm going to offend some of you. There were Christians before 1970. I'm going to offend some of you evangelicals. There were Christians before the 18th century. I'm going to offend some of you Protestants. There were Christians before the Reformation. And I suppose I could add by saying there were Christians before Patrick arrived in Ireland. In fact, I would argue biblically there were what we understand as Christians before the New Testament. So who are we? as we're trying to follow Jesus, where are our real roots? When we reach chapter 7 in Acts, Stephen has been seized and accused of blasphemy against God's temple and against his law, against the place of God and against the standards of God. Essentially, they were saying to him, you're not part of our group and you don't obey our rules. You're not part of our group, and you don't obey our rules. We don't have to look very far to realize that this is true historically. Revival and reform movements were stamped on in the medieval period by the Catholic Church of the day. You're not part of our group. Then the Anglicans in England and Ireland oppressed both the Catholics and the Presbyterian nonconformists. Why? Well, the name gives the reason away. They were not conforming. You're not part of our group. 
in various parts of Europe around the time of the Reformation, Anabaptists and other smaller groups were persecuted by whoever the religious establishment, Catholic or Protestant, happened to be at that time because they didn't conform. In parts of Eastern Europe, where I work with the students, the biggest source of opposition to Bible teaching and evangelism comes from the dominant Orthodox religious tradition in those countries. They encourage boycotts of activities of organizations that are not part of their group. Evangelical revivals, spiritual transformations throughout the centuries have always been regularly opposed by those in religious power. They're disparagingly called enthusiasts or pietists. Clergy who were sympathetic to them were in danger of losing their livelihoods. Some found themselves locked out of their own churches by church authorities. Today, in some parts of the Western world, the liberal establishment is locking the doors of evangelical churches because they don't conform to church rules or beliefs. One of the most famous and humble and enduring evangelical preachers of the early 19th century was Charles Simeon of Cambridge. Yet he was barred from taking services in his own church, and students from Cambridge who were challenged by his preaching and who came to Christ were ostracized, ridiculed, and on at least some occasions they were denied academic prizes and threatened with non-graduation because of their beliefs. His church was vandalized, encouraged by others within the church hierarchy, simply because he wasn't part of their group. In Ireland, as recently as the 1960s, evangelical preachers were hounded out of some towns and villages by an alliance of Catholic and Anglican leaders who regarded them as a threat. And from those of us from a Presbyterian tradition, the reason the Northern Troubles are such an embarrassment is because Presbyterianism, so long synonymous with the defense of civil and religious liberty, became part of the establishment that denied that liberty to other people. There has always been a significant level of opposition to gospel activity from those who are part of the religious scene. Because, you see, the real conflict with the gospel of God's grace, as is found in Jesus Christ, tend not in the main to come from irreligious or atheistic people. Very many of them discover that the message of unconditional love and free grace is actually good news. But it comes from religious people who take, who like to think that membership of a group, a lifetime of good religious observance, good works, must, it has to surely mean something in the eyes of God. And therefore, if you're not part of our group, you're not really in. And what about the other complaints? You don't follow our rules. Don't we have a history? of legalistic fundamentalism at times, Christians judging others because of what they do or what they don't do on a certain day or what they drink or don't drink. And yet, wasn't that the complaint of the Pharisees against Jesus? He broke the Sabbath. He was a glutton and a drunkard. It's always been this way. And this is the context. This is a situation in which Stephen found himself in Acts chapter 7, having to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ in front of the religious establishment on charges that he wasn't part of their group and he didn't obey their rules. And so he begins this interesting speech. 
It's not a history lesson. It's far too selective for that. One commentator referred to this speech as an incoherent ramble from an insufferable bore. I sometimes wonder how on earth some commentators get published. It wasn't a defense of himself. It wasn't designed to get him off the charges. It wasn't very successful in doing that anyway. And Luke, remember, only has a limited amount of parchment on which to write the Acts of the Apostles. So why does he spend 60-plus verses recounting this speech? It wasn't a history lesson. It wasn't a defense of Stephen. It was a defense of God and of His ways in the light of the Jesus event. And we find from Stephen's teaching and and life, some important things that help us grasp where our roots are as the people of God. First of all, our roots are in a people whose God knows no boundaries. And our roots are in a people whose God is faithful through history. Our roots are in a people whose God knows no boundaries. Stephen selects just four epochs of the history— Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, verses 2 to 8. Joseph in Egypt, verses 9 to 16. Then a long passage on Moses from verse 17. And then the settlement and monarchy in verses 44 onwards. Now remember the charge. Stephen is accused of being against the temple and against the law. So he reminds the people of their own history. And he's basically saying this to them. Where did God speak? Where did God show up in history? In Mesopotamia, northern Iraq, where God spoke to Abraham. In Egypt, in nine verses, the word Egypt is mentioned eight times. Now, Egypt was not the favorite place for the Jews of, uh, of, of Stephen's day. And yet, Stephen deliberately mentions it and names it eight times because God was there. God was with his people in Egypt. In Midian, in the wilderness, in a burning bush of all things. Far better than the temple and the Holy of Holies that one person could only go into once a year. And no, God was in a bush in the middle of the wilderness. He was in the desert with his people. He spoke to them through the prophets in all sorts of circumstances. So having a temple wasn't actually any guarantee of faithfulness. It never had been. Of all the times that God spoke decisively to his people in history, none of them were associated with a building. Our roots are also in a people whose God is faithful through history. And we see specific instances of this from Stephen's words. First of all, he's a God who keeps his promises. He gave the promise, uh, the sign was circumcision, the promise of a seed, and also the promise of a land. And both of those were fulfilled in the Messiah, the one who was the seed of the woman who would bring salvation. All that the land stood for in security and identity are now found in the Messiah. And he keeps us safe. He supervised, he oversaw, he kept safe Joseph in the pit and in prison and in Pharaoh's household. 
Well, hold on, Monty, you're saying, what about Stephen? It wasn't working out too well for him, was it? Well, I think what Stephen was trying to say here for us is that he was redefining what it means to be kept safe. It was a new definition. Not safe from trouble or death, but safe through it. As the old Welsh hymn said, death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side, on the other side, on the other shore. We talk about playing safe. What would Jesus say about that? He said, well, what should it profit anyone if they gain the whole world but lose their soul? But with Christ, as we sing regularly, there is no guilt in life. There is no fear in death. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus controls my destiny. There's a new definition of safe. Stephen's point still stands. He could echo words that we'll be singing later on. One with my Lord, I cannot die. My life is hid. My life is safe with Christ in God. Stephen didn't believe that his circumstances on trial for his life somehow invalidated the point that he was making that God is faithful through history, that God is faithful to his people. He keeps his promises and he will keep them eternally safe. And then he keeps us going through hardship and trouble. Moses found this in all the, when he had to run and be in, go into exile, when he was having to lead his people out of the uh, bondage of Egypt. The prophets found this. All of them at times were rejected by the people. What happened to Jesus Christ, says Stephen, was the culmination in a long, long line of those who had been rejected. Jesus stood in line with Moses, with Joseph, and with the prophets. And this is what really poured oil in the fire. Stephen said that the Sanhedrin, those who saw themselves as guardians of the tradition, were actually standing in the long, long line of those who had killed the prophets. Jesus said as much in his parable of the tenants in the vineyard. You're going to kill me like you killed the prophets before me. Our roots are in a people, and a God who knows no boundaries, and a God who is faithful through history. And our roots are also in a people who are prepared to pay the ultimate price and go the ultimate distance. What does it mean to go the ultimate distance? Well, those who appear in Stephen's speech went wherever God told them, and they gave whatever God asked of them. Abraham heard, and he got up, and he obeyed, even though he didn't know where he was going. Joseph paid the price of his integrity and didn't desert God when he was languishing forgotten in a prison for two years. Moses in the wilderness wanderings for years uh, with an ungrateful people. The prophets, though they were rejected and stoned, and now Stephen, with his life in the balance, is prepared to witness to the radical nature of what God has done in Jesus. 
So Luke's concern here is, first of all, to ram home the fact that God knows no boundaries, that he is faithful, and it's not so much about the martyrdom of Stephen, but how that message, although it came up with opposition, led to the spread of the church. By his teaching and death, Stephen facilitates the worldwide spread of the church. The key to that worldwide spread, of course, was the young man who was looking after the coats who approved of Stephen's death. So that when we stand up and when we are able to defend God and His ways and share the good news of Jesus Christ, even among those who are most violently opposed to us at this time, God may have His Paul or His Saul. So do we get the radical message of this supposedly incoherent rumble? I hope we do. We have a God, if you look at this world map, who knows no boundaries. So his map looks more like this. Next slide. Heaven is his home. Earth is his footstool. The world needs to hear. Nationalism that is plaguing Europe knows no place in the kingdom of God. And as the story ends, we see that Stephen says one word about Christ and two words to Christ. He gives us a word about Christ. I see the Son of Man standing. And two words to Christ. Into your hands I commit my spirit, echoing Jesus, and do not lay this sin against, them, against their charge, echoing Jesus again on the cross. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Stephen was rewarded for his faithfulness. What? What? He was stoned. But he got a reward. There was a glimpse that he got that I guess none of us will ever have. Because it's only natural and right that God would reserve such things for those at the extremities of their natural ability to persevere. He gave Stephen something special to keep him going as an encouragement to keep him going to the very end. He gave him a glimpse of himself ready to welcome him. Last Sunday was the marathon. We probably all saw some of the runners. Those who have done it have talked about how in those final few hundred yards, one of the things that really keeps them going is the sight of the finishing line and maybe the sight of loved ones beyond that ready to welcome them. And when they get towards that finishing line, the, the husband or the wife or the mother or the father or the friend isn't just sitting there nonchalantly on an armchair. They're standing enthusiastically, cheering them on, ready to welcome them across the finishing line. And that was, if you like, Stephen in the last couple of hundred yards of his spiritual marathon gets a glimpse of Jesus standing at the finishing line. Why did he talk about Christ standing? Well, a judge stands to give verdict in this culture. So Christ was standing to judge his murderers. An advocate would stand in this culture 
So Christ stood to plead Stephen's cause. And also, like a friend at the finishing line of a marathon, he stood up to welcome home his first martyr. What does it mean for us that Christ is standing in heaven as we go into this next week? Well, with Christ in heaven, we can make sense of the world and we can make sense of history. We can know who we are because we know where we've come from. One of my lectures when I studied at the University of Stirling was David Bebbington, the Christian historian. And he has famously written this in a book about Christian history. He says that Christian history is apologetic. That means that in itself, history is one of the proofs of the existence of God. It reveals as credible the belief that God stands behind and acts within the historical process. It also serves the evangelistic task of proclaiming Jesus Christ as the one whose victorious work assures us that God will bring history to a triumphant close. Christian history brings hope. History brings hope, said Bebbington. You may be familiar with the famous poem by Seamus Heaney, I don't know if it meets more of Paul's approval than the Invictus poem did. I think this one probably does. It's the poem, The Cure of Troy. And Heaney writes this, History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here, writes Heaney. With Christ in heaven, we can make sense of history. With Christ in heaven, we can speak boldly. Stephen could have saved his skin. He could have tempered his words, but he knew what was at stake, the vital integrity of the radical message of Jesus. If Stephen had stepped down on anything, if he had compromised so that some of the law was still necessary to be right with God, that some temple worship in a particular geographical place was still necessary to be a true God-fearer, if he had concentrated and compromised on any of that, the Christian faith was sunk. Because those two things go right to the heart of all that Jesus was and all that Jesus came to do. He died to set us free from the bondage of the law, and he died to give us free access to the Father. If we water down anything of the Christian message, whether it's the uniqueness of Christ or the authority of his word, whatever it happens to be, then we deny our faith. Does all of this sound very harsh for those of us who like to negotiate and be involved in peace building and mediation? Well, the end of this chapter shows us how this radical message will affect people who don't want to hear it. The, the end of it is a bunch of people gnashing their teeth and yelling at each other worse than Stormont on a bad day. But Stephen's love, even for his persecutors, is clear to see. Just witness his last words. They're, they're basically the, the embodiment of that famous Charles Wesley line, happy if with my latest breath I can but gasp his name, preach him in life, and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. Stephen 
loved even his persecutors, but he would not compromise on the glory of God. Because with Christ in heaven, we can still forgive. There is a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Above all, there's a God who forgives and still graciously reaches out to his people, even those who are stoning his prophets. And we have a message of forgiveness. One of the old uh, Christian writers said that it will contribute so much to our dying if we die in charity with everyone. Do not, do not let the sun of life go down on your anger. With Christ in heaven, we make sense of history. With Christ in heaven, we forgive. And then with Christ in heaven, we have no fear. Again, that older writer, Matthew Henry, said, Stephen's body was miserably broken and shattered. It was overwhelmed with a shower of stones. The earthly house was violently beaten down and abused. But the Lord says, let my spirit be safe. Let it go well with my soul. So while we live, our care should be that though the body be starved and stripped, the soul can be fed and clothed. Though the body lie in pain, the soul can dwell at ease. And when we die, that the body, although it be thrown by as a despised broken vessel, and a vessel in which there is no pleasure, yet the soul will be presented a vessel of honor that God may be the strength of our heart and its portion, even though our flesh may fail. Stephen believed that a further shore was reachable from here, and he got a glimpse of it. He knew that while in heaven he stands, no power can force me to depart. With Christ in heaven, we have no reason to fear. Let us sing that song now, before the throne of God above. You'll have noticed at the start of our service, there were a number of announcements rolling on the screen. Um, I'm not going to add much to that, except to say that our freezer ministry at Kirkpatrick is now fully stocked and operational again. Um, the freezer ministry is located at the bottom of the stairs, just at the back of the Forbes Hall, and it's there to provide food for those who are struggling with illness or bereavement, or for those who have recently given birth, or um, similar uh, similar things. So if at any time you're aware of a need from within or outside of our church, please feel free to go and avail of the food in the freezer out the back. All we ask is that if you do so, if you could just make a record of that in the file that's located beside the freezer, so that our, can, our team can then monitor the use of the freezer and replenish it when they have to. And we'd just like to take this opportunity to thank everybody who is involved in preparing food for our freezer ministry at KMPC. The team are so very grateful for your kindness and your willingness to serve in this way. And if this is something you feel that you could um, contribute to in the future, then speak to our freezer ministry team. Talk to Andrea Scott or um, Anne Livingstone or Jean Smith or indeed Anne Patrick or Grace Farrell. 
um, any one of them will be able to help you. And I just want to remind you that our new office administrator uh, started with us this week. Her name is Jane Booth. And I would ask that you would just remember Jane in your prayers as she settles into that role. And also Paul and Mary Rose as they serve alongside her on our staff team. We're very thankful for them all. As we've been reminded this morning, it's because of the faith of Stephen and the apostles and others who came after them who boldly proclaimed the death and resurrection of Christ that we stand here today as Christians, part of a global body of believers. And we want to take some time this morning to remember other parts of that body who suffer persecution and the real and pressing possibility of martyrdom. This week, our denomination met and hold their general assembly. And whenever year, uh, we take some time with our council for mission overseas to pause and to listen to and to hear the global church. And during part of that session, they considered the current situation facing the church in Afghanistan. And they finished with the prayers of Iranian children for their Afghan brothers and sisters. I would like them to lead us in our prayers for others today. Before we do so, I just want to remind you that um, back in the 1970s, there was an Islamic revolution in Iran, and there was great concern in the West for the Christian community there. There was much suffering and martyrdom. And if we fast forward over 40 years later, Iran has the fastest growing church in the world. So I invite you now to watch, to listen, to learn, and to pray with these Iranian children. دعا میکنم برای دخترای افغان که در سن کوچیکی مجبورشون میکنن ازدواج کنن خواهرم تو بهشون کمک کن آمین من میخوام بر بچهای افغانستان دعا بکنم و امیدوارم که زودتر دست اون ظالمین نجات پیدا کنن به مردم افغانستان کمک کن به دخترهای جوان کمک کن از تو خواهش میکنم خدای بلند مرتبه در پناه مسیح آمین واسه افغانستان ای پدر آسمانی ما تو رو تقدیس میکنیم به نام عیسی مسیح خداوند که تو پدر آسمانی هستی و پدر ما هستی و پسر تو واسه ما قربانی کردی که ما بتونیم کاره خوبی انجام بدیم ما تو رو خیلی دوست داریم پدر مهربان آینواریم واسه هیچ کشوری نه هیچ اتفاقی بیفته نه واسه افغانستان دعا میکنیم که سریعتر تموم بشه و بتونیم واسه همه بچه ها دعا کنن ما تو خیلی دوست داریم به نام عیسی مسیح خداوند آمین برای دختران افغانستان دعا کنیم برای اونا که به زور میذارن اونا عروسی کنن این واقعا کار اشتباهیه خدای ما امروز دعا میکنیم که دختری افغانستان آزاد باشن بتونن کارهایی که خودشون خودشون میتونن در توانشون رو انجام بدن و وقتی بزرگ شدن اون موقع شاغل بشن اون موقع کارهای زندگیشون انجام بدن خداوند به 
دخترها و پسرهای افغانستان کمک کن به دختراشون کمک کن که آزاد باشن به, به بعضی که اونا رو اصیر میکنن و میگن تو باید همین رو انتخاب کنی تو باید تو باید در همین کوچیکی ازدواج کنی اونا رو کمک کن خدای در نام ایسای مسیح آمین خدای دعا میکنم برای مردان افغانستان که دیگه جنگ نشه و عذیتشون نکنم و مثل ما راحت باشه بعد میخوام که دختراشون عذیت نکنن مثل ما شاد باشن درس بخونن بازی کنن دیگه نباید عذیتشون کنن گناه دارن اونا هم مثل ما Sam, it says out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still your enemy and the avenger. Isn't it beautiful to hear the voices of children in prayer to our God? As we draw our service to a close, we're going to sing once again. We'll stand and sing, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. God calls us to step out in faith, to follow where he leads, even if what he calls us to do seems impossible. So let's go from here with courage, trusting in God's presence and power, and eager to do God's will. And may the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be among you and within you, wherever you may find yourself this week. Amen.